Well, good evening or good morning or good afternoon. If you're in the Philippines, we're thrilled that you're here. If you're sitting here in Brian Doyle Auditorium at the University of Portland, we're thrilled that you're here. And uh, we know that we have some friends across the country who are joining in or who will be watching this a little bit later. So welcome to all of you. My name is Karen Eifler and I serve as the director of the Garabena Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture here at the university. And I think it's fair to say that we've all been through some pretty punishing times in the last two years. Some of course, much more searing than others. I've gotten off pretty lightly. I've really only suffered the need to cancel many events and celebrations that I was really looking forward to. This evening's talk has a special place in my heart because it was the very first talk I had to cancel back in March of 2020 when Queen Corona turned all of our universes upside down. I think that one of the coolest things that happens is uni in universities is when you find out that other people are looking at the exact same thing you are and seeing something completely different. The only thing cooler than that is when they look through a lens that is completely different from the one you use and find something that you saw too. Both are true for this evening's speakers. Dr. Marianne Lloyd is a professor of psychology at Seton Hall University in New Jersey, where she conducts clinical research on human memory processes in her lab there and teaches courses in statistics and research methods. Dr. Father Kevin Grove is a Holy Cross priest who teaches theology and serves as a pastoral resident and chaplain to the faculty at University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, the UP of the Midwest. Upon, uh, among his research interests are the role of memory in the thought of St. Augustine. Two lenses, one topic, memory. Theology and experimental psychology might seem like such very different worlds, Perhaps it was providential that their original talk was canceled because of a worldwide pandemic that has reinforced for all of us how incredibly interconnected we all are to one another. I hope you and you will join me in welcoming Dr. Lloyd and Father Grove to explore the common ground that they have uncovered about memory, laughter, prayer, and what can happen when a cognitive psychologist and a priest walk into a bar. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm incredibly grateful to be here. Likewise, and Karen, thank you so much for that introduction too. On our title slide, we have uh, an image that helps us to make an important definition about humor to get things going. And in order to do so, we have to think for just a moment about the different sorts of humor that we can often employ. And there is one sort, um, as we talk about laughter and good cheer, um, that happens at the expense of another, whether it's someone we know or someone we don't, who might be caricatured oftentimes by our remarks. This is insufficient for a definition of humor and not the one we're going to be working out of today. So at the outset, we need to make this distinction. The humor that we are talking about um, is not the one that fundamentally demeans, because that could be one that's defined quite necessarily as that which divides us. Rather, we're looking for humor that draws us closer to one another and to God. And it's worth trying to think of, just as we get started this evening, what might be moments of that sort of humor that you have experienced, humor that might draw people together, heal, or even help us to pray. And if you've experienced that, that's what we're going to be trying to explore together. And we've started off with an Italian artist, Andrea Pisano, here on our title slide um, that gets at just such an understanding. It's a picture of Mary and Jesus's interaction. Jesus is laughing. Mary is joyful. And she even seems to be tickling her infant son. That Jesus and Mary, not only when he was young, but later might have roared together laughing, is an important reminder for our talk tonight. Humor is at the heart of both a healthy psychological and spiritual life. I always like to know where a talk is heading um, when, when, when we get started. So we're going to talk a little bit about how we came to start working together. We're going to talk about how some of this may relate to the Feast of the Annunciation, which is tomorrow. Uh, we'll talk about how we 
lens memory a little bit in our two disciplines, psychology and theology. We'll talk about where we see humor as playing a role in our preaching, that's all him, uh, our teaching and in learning. Uh, and we have some case studies as well that are timely, right? Lent and confession. As a cognitive psychologist, I like a good, I like arrows, I like boxes, I like to talk freestyle, right? You might have already noticed. Um, I like our different approaches to talks. Uh, so both of us knew Karen independently. I've known Karen through the work of Collegium since 2008 or nine. I don't know how long you've known her. Since 2014. Um, 2014, good, good memory retrieval, thank you. Uh, Sometimes. And I was here for a conference several years ago and, and talking about how I was trying to develop a course. At Seton Hall, we have a, a core curriculum. Uh, students take two required classes, and then you're supposed to make a class in your discipline that brings these themes in. And I had turned in my syllabus, memory from Plato to the present, and I was really excited. And I got feedback that said, your Catholic intellectual tradition is too old. Please bring something new into this. And I was telling Karen, I was like, I barely, it was hard for me to find any theology. And she said, oh, I have someone for you to meet, Kevin. And I sent Kevin an email and I said, I've heard you can help me solve a problem. And he said, that's great. I've been looking for a psychologist who studies memory. And there began, thanks to you, um, a lovely collaboration. We have our sights on some goals that maybe in a few years we could come talk about some of that research. Um, but it's been a wonderful, um, in addition to that class that I've now only gotten to teach once, um, even more enriching has been this relationship. All right, so tomorrow sets off one of the sort of great days of joy in this season that we're in called Lent. And it's just providential um, that it helps frame our whole talk that it happened to fall at this time. And Lent, uh, the Feast of the Annunciation is when the angel Gabriel from the Gospel of Luke appears to Mary and indicates to her that she is going to be the one who gives human flesh to Jesus to be his mother. Pregnancy is nine months long, and today's feast is exactly, or tomorrow's, tonight's, tomorrow's feast is nine months exactly before Christmas. Mary would carry a memory of this encounter with Gabriel for the rest of her life, and certainly consider it over the course of the next nine months. Do you suppose that it ever made her smile, chuckle to herself, or even grin in amazement? We'll come back to this later, but the question is meant to set up some pondering right now. So what I'd like you to do, if you're willing, um, maybe look at the ceiling or close your eyes so that you can get um, some clarity of mind, picture what you think that enunciation scene looks like, given what we just heard and given what you know from your own um, experiences or, or training, right? So think about when you picture the enunciation, what's that looking like? And I'll give you a minute to do that. So hopefully you have um, something in your mind. I had something in my mind. And then I got this as a painting. And for me, that experience of having something in deep contrast um, to what I thought, I find amusing, right? When we're surprised. This is, as far as I know theologically, again, can defer, a perfectly accurate way to represent the Annunciation, right? We've got Mary. We have an angel. The Annunciation scenes I had were a little more like this, or maybe like this, although I'll admit I never had the dog part. I think I need to research about this painting, right? Um, but not like this, even though now as a, you know, I can bring my cognitive lens and think that maybe this is even a more reasonable portrayal, right? Something a little simpler, a little less ornate. I don't think that we have any information about the architecture. That looks like some pretty fancy living quarters. And again, maybe if there are historians here, I do understand that this can be a way of um, proclaiming importance, right? But if from just a, uh, if we wanted a, an autobiographical memory test, this may be closer.
All right, so central to this idea, though, of humor is the subject discipline that Karen introduced as for each of us. Both Marianne and I are interested in memory. The texture and context of the past can render something amusing in particular, and that's what we're after tonight. Something isn't funny unless it's somehow in reference to something else, right? So something funny is something that's always in relation. And central to that is the manner then in which we cultivate memory. And normally psychological researchers and theologians don't spend a whole lot of time collaborating. The fun part is that we do. And so now we're going to give you a little bit from each of our perspectives, how it is that we grapple with memory. And we'll start with cognitive psychology. So in the field of cognitive psychology, we spend a lot of time uh, thinking about definitions and delineations. This is an example of one person's uh, perspective of memory that we could divide it into sensory and short-term and long-term. And within long-term, we have these uh, different pieces. We might ask if you have to be aware in order to have a memory. That's the idea of explicit versus implicit memory. And there are these incredibly fun studies where you can look at a photograph and say, I've never seen that person before. But if we know you have, we can measure your skin conductance and see that it's different than for someone that is actually new to you, right? So the memory isn't just what we can speak about. We might ask how long memories last, how accurate are they? There's been a lot of talk as we hit the, the two year mark. You know, what did you do for the students in the room if you were here when they sent an email that said, you know, we're, we're shutting down, we're going remote, right? Do you have a clear flashball memory about that event? What about timing? What about context? And then I have seen people yell at each other about whether or not that model on the left is what's happening or not. There are some strong, strong feelings about this. Those are the sort of questions that as a cognitive psychologist, I spend my days asking. The whole, at least, of Jewish and Christian theology is built around ideas of memory from, from my side of it. In terms of prayer, people are supposed to remember, for instance, the Sabbath day in the Old Testament. Seder meals, remember the Exodus, or how God freed God's people. And the most frequent ethical command in all, in all of the Hebrew Bible is to remember. That is, to remember the poor, the widow, and the orphan. In the New Testament, Jesus's commandment to celebrate the Eucharist is to undertake an act of memory. So in theology, memory bridges between the self who remembers, or the community, and the other, not only human persons, but also God. In one way, this is sort of obvious. A person who loses his or her memory, at least on the surface, loses the exterior capacity to demonstrate this bridging. But such a bridge is not bound by time and space. Think about when someone goes to a cemetery to visit the grave of his or her loved one and speaks to the person as if they were standing there beside them. That's what memory does in theology. It isn't just recalling old content in itself, it's participating in it. So Jewish people don't have Passover celebrations because bitter herbs are delicious. They have them as part of the ritual of the Seder meal because they're remembering the Exodus. They're participating now in receiving God's gift of freedom in their own lives. And if you've ever seen a Catholic mass, those who participate in the Eucharist aren't role-playing, but really receiving what they understand to be a gift of perfect love, Christ's self-offering of his own body and blood to his friends. So in theology, we in some ways become what we remember. In remembering the Exodus, Jewish people today become free by God's gift. In Catholic Mass, the other example, in remembering Christ giving his body and blood as a gift, people believe they become what they receive, to be the same thing for the life of the world. So in theology, memory isn't about where I forgot my car keys. It's about a total transformation of myself. So if we had a scoreboard around how interesting or transformative these descriptions are, I would like to award uh, my <laughs> friend and collaborator uh, for that round. Uh, but more seriously, you know, this is why this collaboration has been incredibly beneficial. In addition to helping me understand my own discipline through having to contrast it, I have a new set of beautiful language and perspective and a reminder that when I'm getting mired in my word lists in the lab that these are real humans having whole life experiences that this is related to.
All right. Our thesis, theologically, is that humor follows memory. It makes us vulnerable, but in a way that connects us beyond the limits of ourselves and outward toward God and neighbor. In terms of theology, I can flesh this out. We're going to do this through three supporting points, preaching, teaching, and learning. Here's the first one, preaching, and as it turns out, Seinfeld. Some time ago, I helped to sponsor for ministry students a talk on humor and preaching. And the guest speaker was one of the writers of the TV show, Seinfeld. That's correct. An author of a great American show was, that was so funny and so seemingly about nothing had a chance to speak to students about the meaning of humor. And this writer, who himself was a Catholic, explained that humor is different from telling jokes. It is a way of conveying a message. And the advice of this particular writer was to look for the truly humorous details in our ordinary lives. He recommended, and apparently practiced this himself, getting started by going and pulling old family photo albums off of the shelf, or I suppose now old photo streams. And as a kid sort of lined up, you can imagine this for a group shot in an absurd Halloween costume, that for him was the motivation for an episode of something like Seinfeld or an image of what it was like or what seemed so tenuously cool for us in middle school that somehow been captured on an image or just the dynamics of family and friends and fun. So Marianne and I each uh, did this ourselves, examples from our own childhood. I grew up on a farm in the middle of Montana. Okay, so what might you find humorous about these photos, right? When I look at this with my lens as a cognitive psychologist, um, well, one for me, I, I grew up in uh, Northeast Ohio near Cleveland. So I suppose there were farms about, I never spent time on them. So I find it hilarious to think that you look to be like a teenager there on the left or yeah, upper I'm middle school. Shampooing right? a cow. That you are shampooing a cow. Um, I'm betting not even getting paid for it. Whereas I would have been spending the equivalent days working at hometown buffet, making coleslaw for 2000 people, right? So we were both working in very different contexts. Um, the middle, this we might actually just call, well, that's not surprising where we landed there now, is it, right? This is uh, clearly worked out. And then here on the right, I mean, this, um, this feels like Americana, right? Like true uh, in the fields, got a truck, that posture is the coolest. Looking ever incredibly felt. cool. Is this your senior picture? Yeah. Close. We did take senior pictures in wheat fields in Montana. <laughs> now, it would not be fair if I did not find some gems of my own. Um, I like to call the one on the left, they didn't let girls be altar servers in the 80s. So I would dismantle lamps, right? The no, no bell ringing. Uh, I don't know that that's true. I should I should check with a parent. But on the right, I think again, foreshadowing. That's I don't know. Some of your professors hopefully aren't looking that disheveled. But I'm in front of a chalkboard. I'm clearly talking. I'm very impassioned about things. Right? I feel this way. Minus the curlers, you could uh, check in with the pirates at Seton Hall. This sort of humor, though, um, this this first bit takes into account, at least theologically that the experience of God's love for us might even and especially emerge in our quirks. Our memories of encounter with the divine need not only be limited to a chapel, but could be found in all of these sorts of interactions. All of our memories, and especially when we look to those of joy and humor, might have the potential to open us onto the divine. And when it's, when it's attached to the ordinary, humor um, is capacitated to bear meaning concerning our lives. And we want to suggest that this can happen at the most ordinary spaces, a lunch table, a classroom, a late night dormitory conversation, or when it's so gloriously sunny out on the quad. Thank you all for being in here inside this afternoon. The second is teaching with Jesus. And this is an exercise that I have undertaken. I also, as a Holy Cross priest, live with students in dormitories, um, abiding right along with them as their neighbor. And I just want to ask the room, how many of you live in a in UP campus housing of some sort? Okay, good. So we've got a reasonable sampling of folks here. Um, oftentimes, and I use the memory of Jesus in this instance for it, 
the memory of Jesus can be either distant or limitedly moralizing what people ought to do. That is, a memory of Jesus would somehow be irrelevant to my engineering or my nursing homework, or it's reduced to some sort of slogan that sounds a bit bossy, right? Do this or don't do that, especially. Um, because I'm privileged to live with students, I on occasion gather them together for conversations, often of levity, but sometimes of purpose. And one of the most fun ones is when I ask students if Jesus were to live, dress, and participate in our midst, though perhaps we wouldn't know it, what would he discover about us? Self-reflective hilarity ensues. For those of you in residence halls, just ask a group of friends that question. If Jesus were to come sort of dwell in our midst in Christie Hall, um, what would Jesus observe about the residents there? Smells are a frequent one. Customs, greetings, wall decorations, music, late night rituals, and more. Now a twofold learning happens in this moment. First, one has to know something about Jesus and justify that knowledge in order to imagine these impressions. The second that it is that it allows for, and it's a simple and subtle thing, but an important one. It allows for human to be humor to be 11, which assesses some of the peculiarities that normally accompany student life, for instance, and accommodation at any university. You can see though the pedagogical method. Memory here, through the means of humor, connects the self, a dorm community, and all the while appreciating access and understanding of a religious figure. Final example I have is learning with Balaam. The ancient Greeks used to say that suffering was learning and likewise learning was suffering. They never knew which one was right or how to translate the phrase. And on occasion that may be true, but a university education doesn't have to be so dreary. The texts we read in universities weren't written by people devoid of joy. Humor is also a deep way of learning by many ancient writers and they tried to teach by means of it. Oftentimes people don't expect that out of the Bible, but here is an example I wish to give you from it. This is the book of Numbers in the Hebrew Bible, and it's not normally considered by students to be a page turner. <laughs> Yet, Balaam, this guy over here on the right with the stick, Balaam is a hesitant prophet and ignores God and cannot see an angel in the road ahead of him, but his donkey can see the angel. And so while Balaam can't, his ass can. And the more angry Balaam becomes in this story, the more his spiritually awake donkey resists. Ultimately, the donkey speaks. That's correct. The words out of an agitated ass, reminding the trained speaker, the professional talker, the prophet, how to see and to speak about God. The author of this part of the book of Numbers meant this to be funny, and it isn't the only example, but the humor delivers the profundity. When we as learners look at texts and traditions, not only with the eyes of critical thinking, but with human joy, we can see deeper and further than perhaps we conceived. That is also from a 15th century Bible in Germany. So we're going to slide back um, a bit into the psychological perspectives here on, on some of these on preaching and teaching and learning. Uh, just to give you a little uh, background for those that are into what's happening in brains. Uh, this is from Franklin and Adams, who did a review, uh, and they noted that several studies have examined the neural regions that underlie humor appreciation, showing that our neural funny bone is actually a very complex system. Humor requires a coordinated network of responses involved in generating expectations and associations, perceiving incongruities, and revising these expectations, resulting in effective and expressive responses of laughter. So what that's saying is that um, much humor is not, it's not simple, right? It, it requires a lot of cognitive coordination responses. And I particularly love that part about uh, setting an expectation that is then missed. Right, which we demonstrate here on the right, right? A, a priest, a minister, and a rabbit walk into a bar and the rabbit says, I think I may be a typo. 
So that, in order for that joke to be amusing to you, you probably have, you have to know things about jokes, right? How does this joke usually set up? What is the typo? Um, why is this so close to a plausible answer? Now, whether or not something is perceived as humorous really depends on intention and approach. And that's why we opened this talk talking about that we aren't talking about the, the humor that can be used to belittle as a means of getting amusement. And so when I think about this in terms of how you can use uh, humor in the classroom, um, you know, I teach three classes a semester and I do try to be amusing, especially in something like research methods. People don't really come skipping into that one. <laughs> it needs to be done in a way that works. And so one, belittling is not okay, right? That is not, you know, someone's incorrect answer my response should not be one of mockery to help people understand the correct answer, right? And I, I would hope that that's not um, uh, people that are coming to a lecture like this. I wouldn't assume that that is their, their natural response. But I also think it's important to be authentic. You know, I read a lot of uh, teaching literature or teaching discussion boards. People are really into memes and they keep trying to tell me students love memes and I should do stuff with memes. I'm just not memey. Right, I try, I like try to look up gifts on my phone. I don't feel like it works for me, right? So, but what might work for me? Puns, I really like puns. There's a lot of puns in my classes. I like to rewrite song lyrics. Now that I have an almost 11 year old, I actually know things that are from, you know, later than 2004 um, <laughs> to make things about material, right? Th that's authentic to me. And I think that's incredibly important. And also I think that my uh, co-presenter would agree consistent with this idea that uh, our, our concept of God that we're talking about here, I don't have, right, I don't have access to all of it. And so I need to find a way to connect to those pieces and, and learn what I'm missing. But I also think you can use humor effectively in a way to demonstrate for students your own uh, flaws and fallibility. And just last week, I was at an online teaching conference and the keynote speaker was talking about reducing barriers to student learning. This is something I'm really into. You have to get through methods to get a degree in psychology. So I want those barriers gone. And there were four factors um, that made a difference. And the first two related to belonging. Students need to feel like they belong in your classes and they belong in the learning community. And this for me is part of like a, a recent realizing and recognizing that emotions play a large role in the classroom. They spent zero seconds in my graduate program, in my teaching course, talking about the role of emotions. Actually, if you read most memory research, unless you were specifically looking for an emotion in memory paper, you would not see much on emotions. But now I've come to realize that this is actually really critical. So how can I create an environment of belonging? And the third item is students need to feel that they are able to succeed. And we know, and I know from reading student writing and reading science reports, students just talking, uh, that mistakes are high emotion events, right? And so even just being brave enough to speak in class can be difficult, especially after a couple of years of not having been together. So what can I do to encourage it? Well, one thing I try to do is to talk about my own mistakes in a way that hopefully seems authentic, which is that I now teach statistics and research methods and on my first graduate stats exam, I was calculating variance. Does anyone in the room know what variance is? Do I have any variance folks? I got one, I got one. To calculate a variance, do people know what an average is? Now you didn't know you were getting a stats lesson, sorry. You can still leave. Um, to calculate variance, you take a score minus the mean, whatever it is, and then you square it. What happens to every number that's ever been squared? What kind of number do you always get? It's like the word for optimist. If we squared negative three or three, we would get what kind of nine? Positive nine, right? You could only get positive numbers. I got that first test back and I had left a negative variance for something. And I don't remember exactly what Dr. Klin wrote, but she kind of circled it and said, negative variance, really? But like not in a sarcastic or mean way, just in an, I'm surprised that happened to you. And I tell them, look at what happened to me. I had negative variances on a stats test, now I get to teach, right? And so your one mistake is not the end for you, right? We probably could, I bet we could give a talk on forgiveness. Could you think we could pull that off too? Switch it up the topic for a minute, right? That seems pretty important as a part of our, our theology and understanding. And part of that forgiveness needs to be giving students some space to be compassionate with themselves. 
And then the fourth item is that this needs to feel like the material is meaningful and relevant. And that is certainly a transition that I've made in my teaching of getting out of the concepts into thinking about how we can apply things and making them beneficial. Again, while being authentic to who I am and to the discipline. All right, so we have two case studies uh, to sort of draw some of these themes together. And the first one just seems apropos of where we are right now is Lent, all right? Um, and across the Christian traditions, Lent is a time of learning to love that's based on remembering. That's right, if I gave up candy for Lent, which I did throughout all of my childhood, theoretically, every time I looked at a bowl of M&Ms, I was supposed to think about what I had given up and why. Now, at its best, that might have, if I were a better kid, have helped remind me of my commitment to those in need or even my God. Um, but oftentimes it could render me something of a grump because I just deprived myself of something that I enjoyed. It's like if you've ever met someone who gives up coffee for a Lent, um, it might be a struggle for them. It's an utter horror for those who live around them. But I'm going to rehearse this very quickly. Um, this period of Lent is about remembering how and why we love. And that's right. The whole human life in this tradition is structured around why we love. And I need to sort of build out three ways. So if Lent is prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, we've got the three up there on the slide. Those three relate to three fundamental ways of perceiving or loving in the world. So I'm going to go through them really quickly. It emerges out of this one single half of a verse in the book of Genesis. Um, when Adam and Eve look at this figurative fruit on a tree and see that it's pleasing to the eyes, good for food, and desirable for gaining wisdom. And in the ancient world, those were three ways of describing loves that are actually pretty precise. So the things that could be perceived with the eyes would be goods outside of the body. So this would be love of possessions or love of things exterior to our physical selves. The second, uh, pleasing for food, was the love of fleshly or bodily goods, okay? This included in the ancient world food and drink and sex, et cetera. And the third, desirable for gaining wisdom, interior life, and so one's pride, all right? Um, the thesis, at least of Genesis, is that all of those loves, possessions of physical pleasures and of interior pride were created and are good. Somehow after that moment, however, they developed this element of only being self-satisfying and became things that disconnected people from neighbor and from God and became things that instead um, meant that our worlds become all about us once in a while. I can't imagine this has ever happened to you. It happens to me daily. Our world comes all about us once in a while. We do whatever feels good rather than what is good and we want more than our fair share, all right? So pleasures, possessions, and pride become sources of self-isolation rather than getting us back into balance. Now, of course, the one who claimed that there could be some sort of balance in this is Jesus. When he first appears before he ever goes out and heals anything or preaches or does anything like that, he goes out and faces these same three desires for always the first Sunday in Lent, we read this, these stories again about being tempted in the desert. And when he's out there, he refuses to turn stones into bread to satisfy the desires of his body, not because food is bad, but because he wouldn't do it at the expense of his relationship with his heavenly father. He put the relationship before himself. The same was true when he was offered possessions to own the kingdoms of the world. And the same was true when the tempter took him to the parapet of the temple and told him to cast himself down, have so much pride in his own life, he would make the angels serve his pride to catch him. And in each of these instances, in all three of the temptations of the desert, we just have a claim that a human person might live these desires in a way that they're connected back outward to God and neighbor and not completely stuck somehow in the self. And so the Lenten practices of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving somehow work on each one of those things. Um, now, we all know people who get Lent wrongly, right? I mentioned the folks giving up coffee at the beginning. It becomes just a program of my own self and my own self-improvement. But imagine if I restrain from some sort of consumption of material goods in order that another might have. I would somehow put another before my own possessions. Or if I fasted from some reality for my physical body in order that another might eat. Again, it's not just about me, but actually the feeding of another. 
And the act fundamentally of prayer is when I would put the will of God and neighbor just for an instant somehow before my own. And people who can say words like thy will be done and intend what they mean accomplish precisely that. So the question is, can holy humor help us with this? My contention is that it's absolutely necessary. People who are undergoing almsgiving or fasting and prayer, it's meant to turn us outward, not lock us in on ourselves and to help us to be loving and true. And I have the most fun conversations among those who practice Lenten disciplines by asking them, what is their best Lenten failure? Things that they've given up and it just hasn't gone well. And all of a sudden, like the real purpose of our turning outward to God and neighbor is revealed once more. Try it at some point. Ask people what their greatest Lenten fail was, and you'll see how humor and prayer might collide. And so for me, thank you for all of that uh, beautiful re-rendering. Um, I think of Lent as often as a time to try to reconnect with what's important to me. And so, as I mentioned, um, my child is almost 11 now. So this picture is several years old. Um, and I don't know what we're doing, but clearly we're both laughing right there. Um, if I had to put on my bets, I would bet that this kid had a quick quip. She's got quite a keen sense of sarcasm already. And I find it delightful. Um, but what I know about our memories is that they are quite great at coming up with negative responses very quickly, right? If I were to ask you right now um, for the faculty in the room, you know, can you give me a, a student evaluation comment that didn't feel very good? Or could you give me one that felt really great? And I tested your reaction time because that's what we like to do. I got $22 for 2022 that you'll be faster at the negative comments, right? We're a little bit hardwired to hold that stuff. You know, certainly I can get, you know, it's like, what is the ratio that even works, right? You can have 20 people happy and one person angry and that, that angry one can um, hold on. And so <clears throat> when I think about what I might want my, uh, what Joyce, what I might want Joyce to remember about growing up, I hope that I'm creating a situation where she can also retrieve these memories. She's gonna remember that I yell sometimes, I won't deny that. Um, but I hope that I'm creating enough of these joyful moments as well, both in and out of Lent, um, that we can uh, have some positive counteracts to that. Okay, we picked tough case studies, uh, <laughs> Lent and confession, and we're going all in, right? And I'll be honest, I, for all of my childhood and even into early adulthood, disliked going to confession, though I would readily admit it was good for me. But mystical thinkers do relate forgiveness of sin with lightness and with laughter. Perhaps some of you are familiar with Dante, the mystical poet who had some pretty profound reflections himself about love. Well, his epic poem is called The Divine Comedy. That's right, salvation as a comedy. Hell, of course, is ironic, and that's a little less interesting. Heaven, for Dante, is funny. As he journeys through it, he sees holy figures who are looking back down on their lives on earth and laughing at themselves. And here's what he means by that. The memory of their brokenness isn't erased. In our freedom, we are, you and I both, responsible for what we do. But at the same time, being in heaven means that the pain and the shame and the hurt caused by sin was at long last removed. And people find it absurd to look back and see how they went chasing after some lesser love, whether a possession, a pleasure, or an interior pride, those three things keep coming back again, rather than actually loving God and neighbor. And now that they know how fulfilling the later fullness is, they can go back on themselves and look with a sort of joyful laughter. That brokenness wasn't their true self. Now that they are fully true, they can laugh graciously about when they settled for less. This is how memory in the sacrament of confession works. I can't assume that any of you have knowingly or willingly committed sins in your life, but I am willing to confess that I have done it. Well, let's consider the sin in terms of the truth of who I am. When I sin, some way that is harmful to myself or my neighbor, I do something that is less than 
in fact, opposed to the truth of myself. Sin makes me less truly me. I, in some way, live a false self. And that's why I ultimately find it unsatisfying. And that's why harming my neighbor does not and cannot bring me joy. Well, think about what happens in the act of saying the truth about something that's false. I don't just remember my sin for the sake of it, but I speak the truth about what I had previously lived as a falsehood. That's right, even by my saying something I've done wrong and admitting what I have done, I start to become true in a way that I wasn't before. Truth and Reconciliation Commissions work on this same logic as the sacrament of confession. And the lightness that one feels in having been forgiven and liberated is in large part because the human person has become true again when there was a lie. Laughter and good humor are one of the first fruits of a shared life of the truth. What can be candid about, we can be, excuse me, candid about our mistakes because we're no longer existentially confined by them. I can honestly say as a priest that hearing confessions has completely refashioned how hopeful I am in the potential for joy in each of our lives. From the darkness of untruth, we emerge again into its splendor when we speak together. Even our brokenness might become a chance for eternal celebration. G.K. Chesterton used to use a word to get at this that we don't so much use in 2022, but it's a good one. It's mirth, M-I-R-T-H. I think that's what we're after, a laughter that erupts, not despite ourselves, but right through us. Okay, practical time again, right? This is a, uh, Father Kevin uh, gives a lot of compelling reasons there for why attending reconciliation uh, might be a great idea, but you might, what we know about memory and what I just said about the negative things, you might be having an internal dialogue that is not yet convinced. And so I think one of the uh, most important lines, I think from the field of psychology uh, is just because I have a thought doesn't make it true. Not all thoughts are facts. So if you don't plan to run right out of here and skip over to the next potential reconciliation service, but you have that notion that maybe it would be a good idea that this thought of turning ourselves closer to who we are meant to be, to the person that can bring joy, I might challenge you to challenge some of those thoughts right? What was, it is possible that you had an unpleasant interaction at, at a confession session. I think that's totally, yeah, all right, endorsement from within, um, right? It can always critique our own, um, but perhaps not everyone. So we know that you might've had 10 wonderful ones where you left and, and felt much lighter. Uh, Facebook reminds me of confessions past, uh, the ones where I thought were good enough to share which I think is okay, right? I'm allowed to say what happens, yeah, you are? You can say I Okay, good, um, not in violation. But the, the recommendation was to um, try to move forward with more love instead of anger. That's pretty good. I, can, I could use that again. So this can be a place where you can take some time to try to tell yourself, you know what, this might be tough, but I think the outcome will be worth it. And maybe if you notice someone gives a funny homily, that's probably whose booth I'd be heading out. <laughs> this is a work called The Windsock Visitation by uh, an American artist named McGrath. As we noted at the outset, we didn't pick for this talk to be just before the Feast of the Annunciation. That was the work of the great Karen Eifler in the Garaventa Center, rescheduling it. But Mary um, presents us with just the right person to focus on humor, memory, and how psychology and theology interrelate. And those of you who've had a theology course here at the University of Portland have probably read about right after Mary encounters the angel Gabriel, she goes out of town to her cousin Elizabeth's house, likely to get away from the people who would have criticized what was a scandalous pregnancy at that time. 
And so the setup of that journey and the visit is somewhat somber. And it parallels Hebrew Bible passages that increase its seriousness. But that's why the image, this particular one of the encounter is so important. The greeting of Mary and her cousin Elizabeth is so extraordinary. And this is where memory and humor meet in the deep and abiding joy that characterizes human life with God. Elizabeth and Mary hold each other in smiles, laughter, and a joy that characterizes who they're really meant to be. John the Baptist, Luke says, leaps in Elizabeth's womb at this point. They're models of memory because they're models of joy. And Pope Francis recently and innovatively, as far as I can tell in Catholic theology, which doesn't happen all that much, referred to Mary as Our Lady of Memory. That also means we should consider her to be Our Lady of Laughter and Joy, just as she abides with us in our sorrows. So we're going to wrap up with a couple jokes and uh, a notion. So how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know, How many? One. But the light bulb must want to change. Two. How many Catholics? That's Cleveland for you. How many Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? I don't know, Marianne. None. Candles only. I'll admit. This one I had to spend a little time thinking about before I got it, right? I feel like there's some insider candle stuff going on. And maybe this was not even written by a Catholic. And so uh, these are my way of uh, having uh, a good transition into something that uh, showed up in my email, like at Richard Rohr's Daily Meditations. And I just want to grab this excerpt that is a uh, light bulb adjacent. He was relaying a conversation with Bishop Tutu that said, um, Bishop Tutu told Richard Rohr, we're only the light bulbs, Richard, and our job is just to remain screwed in. And for me, this brings a deep sense of relief that I've just got to do that part. And hopefully our conversation today uh, has given you some convincing and compelling evidence that remaining screwed in can actually be a little bit fun. So thank you so much for your time and attention. We're happy to answer questions. And I believe you. Yeah, I just want to... I hate to interrupt. First of all, will you help me thank Father? Uh, we always get a lot of questions of if you want to see this again, or if, uh, if somebody wasn't able to be here, will it be available? And they were kind enough to put our website up there. And so for those of you out there, um, you can spread, let the joyous news be heard that uh, this will be up on our website, probably by Monday, once we get a little bit edited and captioned. Um, we're gonna, we have a few minutes for some questions. Happy to have you do some thinking here in Brian Doyle Auditorium. And if you are watching online, please don't use the chat function, use the Q&A function. And, uh, I will, I'll keep track of that. You two keep, why don't you two stand over here and keep track of 3D questions and we'll yield the floor to those in 3D. Uh, one of the most annoying kinds of memories are those uh, memories of little moments of humiliation. Uh, they can go all the way back to when you were six years old or it could be something that happened last week. But they, 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 they recur, you don't want them to recur, they recur, and you almost can't stand to look at them. Um, and I wondered uh, what relationship uh, those kinds of memories might have to um, your project. Start? Yep. Yep. Go for it. I'll give a practical answer. So I, and I should preface this by saying I'm not a clinical psychologist, so this is not therapy. This is my, uh, this is my perspective. For me, those are troubling because it's a time that I have been really misaligned with who I want to be in the world, right? So maybe I do give kind of a sarcastic quip to a student in class, and it feels a little too, too sharp for what I want to do, right? And that's not who I want to be, right? I want students to feel like they belong and I believe they can be successful. Um, so I think that can be one reason that we can uh, ruminate and get stuck there. 
this is now sort of, um, you know, based on other conversations with professionals discussing, are you an introvert? Me, I'm right yeah. on the border. Right on the border. And so my understanding is that uh, people who score higher on introversion are even more likely to have these, uh, this propensity to ruminate um, on a conversation and kind of go back over and I wish I would have said this or I wish I wouldn't have done this. I mean, I guess I'm assuming this is something where you've made a poor choice. If someone did something terrible to you and they haven't asked for forgiveness, I think that can also be a reason, right? You're hurting. Um, and I think especially if this is coming from someone that's supposed to love us and take care of us, it can also kind of get stuck, get stuck there, right? So Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? It's really kind of messing with your ability to move up the pyramid. Those are kind of my um, off the cuff thoughts. So I would say if the person's not around to talk to, it still probably is worth writing a letter of forgiveness or going to confession, perhaps to talk through it, even if it's, I don't think there's a statute of limitations, right? You can, you can bring no, no expiration no, date on no, no expiration. <laughs> Okay. Uh, and just to add a theological point and a brief one, um, there's a beautiful line in Holy Cross's constitutions that talks about reversals of things that are broken. Um, so there's yeah, about um, injustices, etc. Um, but it's speaking of God's grace. And so there's no humiliation that God's grace might not exchange for a blessing. Um, but in that, it also admits that it's very hard sometimes for us in ourselves to make that exchange of humiliation for blessing. Um, and at the, at the very least, um, sometimes when we get stuck in a loop of something like that, a memory that um, causes us uh, frustration and even hurt, um, those are the moments that we have to be the most open to a grace that might transform us because we can't do it ourselves. And so theology at that point um, has a great deal of humility because it must, because oftentimes we on our own terms can't negotiate that exchange and need something greater. Okay. Yes, please. Yeah, I mean, so somewhat going off of that, the your case study two on the confession, I was just thinking about um, how you guys would look at anxious thoughts or thoughts that one perverts in their own head that they might see as a sin, but others who might have also engaged in the situation would be like, no, that wasn't your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. And just how you would address that from both sides of your project. You want to start again? Sure, I will. And again, stating this is the domain of clinicians, so non-professional, but, you know, I really like this stuff. So I read about it and think about it. So yes, I think that's the whole, just because you have a thought doesn't make it true. And we really are, I mean, our ability to, to criticize ourselves in ways that we would never, never do to someone else, it's, it's, it's astounding the, the standards we hold ourselves to versus other people. Um, so I think that, yes, that, uh, and certainly anxiety, now I'm gonna try to do what we call source monitoring exercise. Where was I just listening to someone talking about anxiety? Oh, it was about the idea of listening to intuition, right? This is like a hot topic right now. Like, listen to your gut. And the person was like, if you have anxiety, your gut is not helping you. Your gut is telling you all kinds of ridiculous things. Bad, bad source, right? Reliable friend without anxiety, good source. Check in with them. So, so I think that, um, again, not to, not to steal theological thunder, but one of the things that I appreciate and, and love about my Catholic faith and recognizing this might occur in other faiths, definitely not trained in those, um, is this idea that we can encounter that all-encompassing, overwhelming love, not just in prayer alone and quiet, but in other people, right? I, I love that, you know, that whenever two or more are in my I'm in your midst. Got it in my name. Got it in my name. That's what we're doing, right? So that idea that when you are with your friend in, the, in that genuine way of them loving you and not wanting to see you hurt them, I mean, that's to me, psychology might not agree, but I would interpret that as, as God. And just again, to add a brief theological point, there, there, the good part about the history of people writing down their mystical experiences is that we often can find sort of fellow people, not only in our immediate nets, but those who have walked the road before us, who know something about these very things. Um, and it's often labeled, if you go looking for it in mystical traditions, sometimes you'll find interesting insights under this when people are talking about scruples, 
uh, sometimes is the word that gets used for it. And thinking about, and they're really famous ones, if any of you are at Jesuit high school before you came to UB. Um, Ignatius of Loyola is one of the ones who really thought through sort of spiritually how frustrating this was um, and feeling like, feel like he was getting stuck in loops of what were very likely some, some pretty serious anxieties. Um, and what is sort of so beautiful about those folks is one, we see sort of common travelers on the road. Um, but two, and, and again, like I'm coming, emerging out of a Catholic religious tradition, spiritual companions and spiritual direction, not just confession, um, but those outside of ourselves, right? When we get outside of the echo chamber of our own hearts, um, actually provide a place where we can hear another human voice validate that we don't have to be trapped by um, that particular anxiety or scruple as it arises. Because oftentimes when we're just working through it again ourselves, and this is something again that is named by a spiritual tradition, doesn't mean there's something wrong with us, it's just something that happens. Um, but we can find companions on the journey for it, and that might be one of the most important parts about walking together um, in working through these things. It's a great question. Anything else? I have a very shallow question, if you want to take that. <laughs> um, so I, Seinfeld came up. So I'm just wondering if there are any other pop culture uh, places that you've, I mean, uh, things that you've pulled into your research and work as you work together for humor or memory or any other shows, books, or this or that? We haven't worked on anything together, but I'm very welcome to say something that is a show that you find funny. Wait. I don't watch television, so I don't, and not because of a moral thing, but because of my very early bedtime and not being interested in, in, in uh, like I listen to podcasts, but even within that, that's a great question. I don't think it's shallow at all, because I think going back to my point about um, finding material to be meaningful as being important for reducing barriers to student success, I should do that, right? I heard a, I heard a great, you know, speaker talk about how you need to be up on television and music and films because that's what's important to your students right those are those are emotionally invested things that are important to your identity right much more so than construct validity which I spent a lot of time talking about so no but that may be for Lent next year watch television I'll watch for Lent. television for Lent to be a better professor thanks yeah I can't claim to be culturally relevant either um in, to create a video for a humor concert uh competition my students a few years ago like brought song lyrics in just like out of their sources and out of where they're from and asked me to read them off of blank sheets of paper <laughs> and then recorded it while I was doing it um yeah my my ability to be sort of just sadly funny by my irrelevance um you know emerged very quickly Josh did you have a question yeah um I'm interested in the relationship between memory and forgiveness uh, if the harm is done to me, I I can remember it, and even if I've forgiven the person for, for doing so, um, I remember it, and that I recognize that they have the potential to do that same harm in the future. And so I wonder if it's possible to remember and forgive. I wonder if you have like uh, any thoughts from your disciplines that might be related to this. Should I start there? This, uh, it's a wonderful question, and it's a really big one. Uh, and so I'll treat it very insufficiently and be happy to, to chat more about it um, after. But the sort of short of it is, is that forgiveness doesn't require erasure. Um, and in the realm of justice, it really couldn't. Um, and that's not something in any case that humans are able to accomplish on their own. And so what would I accomplish in forgiving? Um, a wrong that had been done to me. I can't somehow make the past go away, even um, if I would wish so. Um, but what forgiveness does accomplish is a, a rechanging of a relationship uh, to shame and to guilt um, and to pain and hurt that at least draws into a relationship, ideally by uh, sort of sometimes with grace that's needed for it, um, into a new way of relating to that thing. Right. And so something that has been forgiven um, means I relate to a brokenness in my past in a new way that I get to reinscribe and somehow rewrite that thing without it governing me in a, in a way that sort of continues to burden me. Um, and so that in sort of really sort of tight nutshell 
um, is why forgiveness doesn't require erasure. In fact, that would be a really bad thing in the moral universe for the things that we would forgive in order just, just to disappear. Um, I'll just, I'll, I'll leave that and we'll be happy to talk about it more. It's a really great question. Yeah, I will just echo, right? Forgive and forget is a ridiculous idea, right? That's not how, unless we have, you know, amnesia, right? Mem um, brain malfunctioning is notwithstanding. And again, not stuff that I'm really mired in because I like word lists, but all that, you know, generational trauma, early negative experiences, right? We know that even if we explicitly cannot describe these things, they continue to have impact on who we are. And I think what, um, and not like PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, right? So again, not my wheelhouse, but it, the idea in that therapy, my understanding is not that you're gonna remove the memory, but the way that it impacts you can be changed and affected. And I, and I think that, you know, now I'll really go into zones I'm not, interpersonal relationships, right? Like what is the line? How long do you get to remind someone that they did something crappy? <laughs> you know, that time they, this is a very minor incident, right? Like a, there was a mug broken while I was on my trip that I had just gotten. It said caffeinated, it had an ion on it. It had the coffee logo, it was like free with my order and it was broken, right? This is not the first dishware. And my husband said, well, I could just not wash dishes and then there'll be no more broken cups, right? So uh, there's probably a pretty short statute for something like that, right? I can't complain every time a mug is broken. But for bigger things, I think sometimes we need to be able to recognize those patterns because they may be a sign that we're not in a healthy relationship, right? If people are constantly asking for forgiveness and constantly doing the same thing over again, they aren't also being willing to make changes. So I, I think that, again, like it just keeps coming back to that. We don't live as like isolated beings. It is, it is happening in, in community and relationship. And um, yeah, but yeah, it's a good question. But yeah, forgive and forget is ridiculous. As far as I can tell, forgive and forget came from King Lear from wow. Shakespeare. And of all the good things Shakespeare did, that was a really bad one. <laughs> Brandy, are you ready to ask the last question of the evening? Oh, right. I know there's. Oh, okay. I just want something from the first to the beginning, uh, a reference to the ocean. I the question that was just asked, and specifically to do when you experience humiliation or any of those things, and I won't go into the psychology because I don't even care Can I just guess, having not read it? I mean, to me, it seems like that initial response is very bottom-up, amygdala-driven, right? It's like that's firing off. But when you want to do something like forgiveness, which you know, I think for most of us is not our natural disposition, it's going to be more top-down prefrontal cortex requesting responses. And I don't know enough about emotion literature to, to know if it be, operates differently, but I just think of that as you know, a, a more minor example is you're sitting in class and you're, you feel your phone vibrate, right? And your amygdala is like, what's the text? What's the text? What's the text? And your prefrontal cortex is like, take the notes, take the notes, take the notes. And so I think that, you know, the, that there's those, those are processes are happening in opposition. And I assume it needs to be some sort of deliberate, it's a good developmental question. Like, can toddlers actually forgive? I'm betting they can, right? Because I don't think that they've got enough, uh, enough of this up here to help them kind of inhibit and understand. But I don't know that. That's, that's conjecture based on some broad, I've never, you'll never find the word myelination in any of my papers. So that if you already, I was like, uh-oh, if that's the base you don't want to cross. Yeah, that's my, that's my guess. You're not taking, you don't want to take a brain guess? No. That might be a first, and that might be a good place to end. We've never had a guest refuse to answer a question before. So thank you for that. I failed to mention at the beginning that this talk uh, was funded by the Beckman Humor Project. John Beckman gave the University of Portland some money uh, to use humor as a gentle sideways weapon against the forces of darkness. And um, I, I, I feel a lot lighter and I, I, 
I'm just so thrilled that you're here. And I think John, John Beckman and his wife are just smiling and laughing uh, down from heaven. So thank you so much. It's not often that you get to come to a talk and get both a surge of dopamine and grace. And that's what we, what, what we got when we walked into the bar with a priest and a cognitive psychologist. Please join me in, uh, well, in thanking Father Grove and uh, Dr. Lloyd. And thank you and good night and good afternoon and good morning. Have a good day. Go get some sunshine on the quad, you folks. <laughs> <laughs>